copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. We are studying in the book of Acts for several weeks, for sure, the church. And today, you're going to get to hear the first sermon. I'm going to preach someone else's sermon this morning. I've never done that. Actually, I'm not going to preach his sermon. I'm just going to illustrate and illuminate, hopefully, for your sake. So Luke, the great physician that we all know who wrote the Gospel of Luke, he wrote the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, he is writing to record what happened in the first church, how the church got started, how we went about getting into the, uh, the world. So we, we talked a couple of weeks ago, the Holy Spirit has arrived at Pentecost. He has come upon the church, the 120 people gathered in a house. And Peter and the eleven now speak to the masses about what they have seen and heard. People talking in their own language. Languages that they hadn't studied, they were now declaring the gospel in their own language. So if you follow along with me, chapter, four, I mean, chapter 2, verse 14, follow along as I read this passage through verse 36. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem... Let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women. And I will prophesy, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth, was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he is poured out what you both see and hear. For was it not David who ascended, it was not David who ascended into the heavens, 
But he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this recording of Peter's sermon, and thank you for the truth that it brings out. May our hearts be awakened to it this morning, and our lives be changed by it. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so I know you're thinking, man, that's a long passage, so it's probably going to be a long sermon. Well, I'm going to try not to be, but you never know. God's got other plans sometimes. But Peter presents a very comprehensive argument in his sermon. He, he presents a very comprehensive argument for the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And the church must always be proclaiming that. That is our message. That is our message to the world. That we proclaim conclusively that Jesus Christ is the Savior God promised us. That's what we've got to be proclaiming. And that's kind of the idea of this passage, of this sermon of Peter's. So how does Peter compel these Jews to believe that, to accept that fact that Jesus Christ, who they crucified, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah? What evidence does he use? Well, Peter presents four arguments, and they're on, on the outline in your bulletin. presents four arguments that clearly convey Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. First of all, Peter pushes the Spirit. He, he's pushing the Spirit on them to, to help them first understand. Look at verses 14 through 21 again. I want to read it again for you so you know where we're at. Peter stood up with the 11. That's the 11 disciples. They all stood up. They're on the temple courts, by the way. They're out in public now, um, and they're on the, in the courts and the steps of the temple. And he raised his voice, and he proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, the blood and fire and a smoke cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter, yeah, amen. Peter and the 11 stand up and he's speaking loudly. He's intentionally getting their attention. Now, this is, this is a big crowd, the 120 of the church that got filled with the Spirit. They're there. Now there's a huge crowd. And we read all the nations off two weeks ago that are there. Uh, it's a big crowd because it's a festival, the Pentecost festival, 50 days after Passover. So it's a big crowd's in Jerusalem. But he begins to speak kind of like one of God's prophets. Hear what I'm saying. Listen to my words. They will be important to you. They're true and worthy of your attention. I mean, every time you read in one of the Old Testament prophets, what they, when they start speaking, they kind of give that, that indication. Listen to what I'm saying. First of all, he's going to squish the whole idea that they were drunk. That's what somebody suggested, that they were drunk. That's why they were speaking in languages that they couldn't, some couldn't understand, some could understand. He squashes it because Pentecost is a solemn festival. To be drunk, these are devout Jews, remember, that was a description Luke used last time. To be drunk at nine in the morning on the day of a festival was wrong. 
They wouldn't have been doing that. So he squishes that, that really quick. And then he says, and this is the most important turn of, of the phrase, on the contrary. It means but. It means instead. It means I've got an explanation that isn't about drunkenness. He redirects the cynics that are there and all the other people to some truth. This is what was spoken. You know, when you, when you know that there's a prophecy in the Old Testament and you wonder when will it be fulfilled, and someone comes to you and says, this is what was said. This is happening. It's kind of a, a big deal. I mean, Peter is really stepping out in faith and knowledge and telling them that exactly what they are seeing is exactly what Joel the prophet talked about. Now, who's Joel the prophet? Well, it's a little book in the, in the Old Testament. He probably prophesied sometime after Israel had been exiled, but before Judah had been exiled. The temple was still there and stuff. But the big event, there's no real set time for Joel's prophecy because it's more about an event that happened. Judah had been eaten alive basically by locusts. Locusts had come in, eaten everything, just stripped everything, all their crops, all their vegetations. So it was a woeful time for the, for the people of Judah, the children of, of Judah. And so... He's, he's coming to them, and he's coming to them with some hope. There's it, a lot of despair going on because this traumatic event. We've never really probably experienced the locust infestations that the Bible talks about. But Joel begins to speak to them about a future time, and that's where Peter picks up at in verse 17. In the last days. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think the prophecy is, is fulfilled in the last day. In the last days means that from Christ's resurrection to when he comes back. That's the last days. So for your information, we're in them, okay? We are in the last days because it is the church age. It is the age of the church propagating the gospel to the world. So we are in the last days. We've got to let that sink in sometimes. It didn't say last day. It said last days. So it's been 2,000 years, which is only like two days to God, right? So we're, we're okay. It's not, not gone too long. But then when God sends the Holy Spirit on them, these things will happen. That's Peter's point. Peter pushes the fact that this is actually coming true in front of your eyes right now. Now, it's always interesting with Old Testament prophecies. They come true in parts and phases. They, don't, they, may, they may look a little bit like something is happening that the prophet said in the Old Testament. And then you get into the New Testament, there may be some things like this where it's, it's a lot of it looks true. But the ultimate fulfillment is when Jesus returns. In a lot of those prophecies. But he takes these devout Jews all the way to their Bible. That's why he quotes Joel. See, they didn't have a New Testament. They didn't have 66 books. They only had 39 or 37. Um, they, he takes them to their Bible. And all these things that are listed here, some of them things and a lot of these things have been happening for the last 33 years, actually, since Jesus came to the earth. And he doesn't get real specific, but let me give you some examples. Prophesying. Okay, first of all, prophesying is not always telling the future, okay? That's what you've got to understand. It's mostly telling the truth, illuminating the truth, bringing the truth to light. But it's not necessarily predicting future events. Speak truth, reveal the wisdom of Scripture. That has been going on since Jesus arrived. I don't know about you, if you've read your Gospels, you know that. Visions. Visions have been happening. Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, he had vision. Uh, Simeon had a vision. Anna had a vision. Mary had a vision. Joseph had a vision. They all had visions. The transfiguration with Peter, James, and John on the mount, that is a vision. Dreams. The J Joseph had dreams. Get Jesus out of Bethlehem because 
Herod's going to kill him. The Magi, the wise men that came and brought gifts, they had a dream. Don't go back through Jerusalem. Go, go another way home. Avoid Herod. The slaves of the time would even prophesy. People who were servants, people who were slaves, people fought to be too uneducated to tell the truth, to understand the truth, to, to talk about God. That's what, that's what he's saying. Is they will even tell the truth. Onesimus, which is what the book Philemon is about, Onesimus was a slave that got saved in Paul's care. That's what the book of Philemon is all about. And so he, he could speak the truth. The Spirit will not discriminate. All who believe in Jesus will receive it. Wonders, he says wonders. Well, the darkness at Calvary, that's pretty amazing. We're not talking cloudy, okay? Remember I said this a month or two ago in Mark. Darkness was dark, okay? It wasn't cloudy. It was dark. The sun was blocked out. Uh, the voice that happened when Jesus was baptized. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The transfiguration was a wonder for them. Signs. All the miracles that Jesus did. Walking on the water, calming the storms, feeding the 5,000, feeding the 4,000, raising Lazarus from the dead. Those signs that Jesus did, they, including the resurrection, including the fact that the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, that was a miracle. That was a sign that something had happened. There were even people that rose from the dead after, after Christ's death. And Matthew talks about them. And they walked around. Blood. Those things happen. Calvary had the, had the smoke and fire, the blood. The moon was full at the time of the crucifixion. More than likely, in this darkness, when you could see the moon, like I could see it this morning, the full moon was over there and the sun was coming up over here, the moon probably looked like blood. And we've seen that a couple times recently in some full moons. So it happens. The tongues like fire came and, and rested on the, the people in the church when the Holy Spirit come. The sun was dark at Calvary. The full moon in the darkness looked like blood. But, guess what? These events happen. They're fulfilling the prophecy, but they'll be even grander when Jesus comes back. On that glorious day, the prophet says. On that glorious day, these will be even more spectacular. But here's the result. All of those signs and all those events and all those you know, mystical things, those are, those are wonderful, but they're testifying to something. They're pointing to something. And, and Peter brings that out, which is from the prophet Joel in verse 21. Everyone, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes, amen. This is the response to all those events. Sometimes people sit around and say, I want to see a sign. Well, those signs have happened already before Christ and during Christ's resurrection in his time on earth. But the fact is, is that now everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved because the Holy Spirit is there to help you call on the name of the Lord. What does call mean? We, we know how it means to call somebody on the phone or call somebody's name. But this word also has a meaning that, that most people don't realize. It's, it's an appeal. It's a plead. It's a plea and a begging for mercy, for help. It's to call upon a deity, a divine power, to help you. And so when God uses it, he's got to be talking about calling on to avoid judgment, which is why it says you will, they will be saved. Saved, is a, in this case, is a passive verb, meaning someone else is doing the work. You're not doing it. It's a passive verb used to mean receiving salvation. 
receiving salvation from maybe trouble or danger, but in, God, in God's word, it's talking about receiving say, salvation from judgment of sin because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we need that salvation. So it's got to mean God's judgment is going to be saved from those who call on the name of the Lord. Salvation is the product of this magnificent passage. That's the point. Jesus came to save us. We just testified to that by the Lord's Supper. The Holy Spirit will make this known because the blood of Christ can save you now. And Peter pushes on them the truth of the Spirit. He wants them to understand all of this stuff that's going on is because of the Holy Spirit that now God has given us, and he's going to get clear about that in a minute. The Spirit has come. Redemption by the Messiah is available. And Peter uses the cynic's remarks about being drunk, which is back in verse uh, 13. He uses that remark to kind of launch his sermon. So Paul does that in one case when he's in Athens. But the Messiah has come, and the Holy Spirit testifies to it. The Holy Spirit's testifying to it. You know, politicians, CEOs, influencers, editors, journalists, marketing people, they all have an agenda to push. They all have some agenda they want to push on you. They usually do it by lots of repetition, lots of grand displays, lots of money invested, how many times some ad pops up on your, your phone when you're looking at some social media site or whatever. They're pushing an agenda. Well, Peter pushes an eternal agenda right here. He pushes the eternal agenda of the Holy Spirit that all who call on him will be saved. All who call on the Lord will be saved. And you know what? This agenda was set before time even began. This is something that God started long and thought of and planned long before time started. God will send his spirit to offer atonement for sin. Peter uses an Old Testament passage and, and here, and it illuminates Jesus' words. Jesus has actually given us clue about this. In John chapter 15 and 16, here's a couple of the phrases he talks about when he talks about the spirit. The spirit is also called the counselor. When the counselor comes... The one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. All these, this church that walked into the temple, they are testifying because of the Holy Spirit. And they're testifying in a language, some of them, that they have never studied. Jesus also says, he will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing right here when he does this. You know, we need to push the Spirit's agenda, okay? The, the world is, is said enough. We need to push the Spirit's agenda, which is that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. He is the agenda. He came to testify and reveal Jesus. That's why the Holy Spirit came. And those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, we have the Spirit of God in us. We have the Spirit. And that's so we can glorify Christ through our words and our actions to speak what Jesus said, to testify. Remember our memory verse from last month, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So I want you to hear this. When we refuse to speak to Jesus or speak Jesus to people, when we refuse to do that, we're really denying the Holy Spirit resides in us because that's the whole purpose of him residing in us is to speak about Jesus, to talk about Jesus. We are denying our salvation 
when we don't talk to people about Jesus. We are refusing to obey what Jesus told us to do. Be my witnesses. Jesus gave us this command to make disciples. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Because we have the Holy Spirit. The world has set the agenda far too long. The world has told us you can't pray in public, you can't pray in private, you can't play, pray anywhere. They've tried to tell one lady was arrested in England for praying on a street in front of an abortion clinic. Wow. They've dropped the charges since then, but it's just amazing. We've let the world set the agenda for too long. We need to set the agenda. We must speak up and speak out about our Savior. And the Holy Spirit is how we do that. He gives us that power. So let the Holy Spirit push you to testify repeatedly. We need to be saying it over and over again, just like the ad that keeps popping up on your phone or your TV. We need to be that persistent. Tell people about the love and grace and mercy that's in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin. So that's the first point of Peter's sermon. He, he makes that point that the, the Spirit has come. Joel's prophecy has been fulfilled. Now, who is the Spirit pointing to? Who is this all about? Well, Peter tells us in verses 22 through 24. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he, though you, he was delivered up according to God's predetermined plan, and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. So now Peter preaches Jesus. Probably my favorite part of the sermon. Peter preaches Jesus. Peter explained why they're hearing the gospel in their own language. The reason is Jesus. And now he explains... The, who the gospel is. Well, who's it about? Peter introduces and reminds the crowd. Remember, you've got foreigners. You've got people from out of town there that may not have even been around Jesus at all. And so he's introducing Jesus to them. He's reminding the locals about what had happened. This devout crowd of, of Orthodox Jews there. Okay, They're following their religion and they're listening because they know their Bible. He tells them about Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified man that was crucified the day before Passover. Wow. I mean, that was, not, that was not in the plan. But God made it work out that way. That Jesus Christ was crucified the day, same day the Passover lambs were being slaughtered for their Passover celebration. Ain't God good. He asked them, hey, remember that guy? Remember that guy? He hung on a cross. He was killed. Peter piques the curiosity of those out-of-towners, those people that weren't around and didn't really know what happened if they weren't there for Passover, which they should have been, but sometimes they don't. And he's, he's, he's piquing their curiosity and he's scolding the locals. Look what you did. So next, Peter levels, levels the stinging verdict to the local Jews. You used the Romans to kill Jesus on a cross. You used the Romans to do this. The Gentiles... Lawless men, people who have no idea what a Messiah is. Even though it was God's plan from eternity past, even this was God's plan from the very beginning, before he even created light, this was God's plan. 
they were still guilty of doing this because they crucified an innocent man. They were still guilty. They turned against a man from God, a man from God who had been doing miracles all over the place, attested to them by miracles and signs. And they chose Barabbas. They chose a crook, a rebel, a, a murderer over Jesus. I mean, Peter's telling them the truth. He's, he's, leveling, he's just leveling the guns at them. He's like, listen, this is what you did. And now, next, they hear the craziest thing to think about. God raised Jesus from the dead. Hallelujah. God raised Jesus from the dead. The, really? I'm sure the out-of-town folks are kind of like scratching their head going, what in the world? So to some of them, this is a newsflash, breaking news. Jesus was raised from the dead. This Jesus that was killed on a cross. Jesus, killed on a cross, dead without a doubt, got poked in the side by a spear to make sure he didn't just pass out, was dead, now lives. Hallelujah. Where has this news been? I'm sure they're thinking that. Why, why haven't we heard about this? Well, the local Jews are like, because we didn't believe he was the Messiah. But actually, the reason they haven't heard about it is because we've been waiting for the arrival of the Holy Spirit so that they could speak to them in their own native heart languages. Now Peter gives them the ultimate revelation. God raised him to end eternal death. That's what he did. It. He raised him to, to, to break the curse of death from us. See, once Adam and Eve sinned, we were all under that curse. We we're still under that curse if you don't believe in Jesus Christ. That curse was real. And God raised him to break that curse. What? I'm sure some of them were like, how could that be? If that is true, it could mean only one thing. If the Jews that had studied their Bibles and knew their, their Bible from cover to cover had studied, they would know that if he raised this guy to relieve the curse of death and sin, this could be only one person. There could be only one person that would be this Jesus of Nazareth. He must be the Messiah. They were probably drawing that conclusion in their mind. Jesus is not saying it clearly. I mean, P Peter's not saying it clearly yet, but they're thinking, maybe some of them are thinking, nah, that can't be right. But these 120 people, these 120 people that are standing here say they saw him. They saw him risen. They saw him and they, they testified that he is risen from the dead and he's now ascended to the right hand of God. They know that happened and they're telling us in our language. This, this is just foreign to them. They're not used to hearing their language spoken in Jerusalem. I'm not talking about Greek, Aramaic, or Latin. I'm talking about a native language from a country not, not even anywhere near Jerusalem. They're hearing it in their language. Peter tells them that death could not hold Jesus. It's impossible for Jesus to have stayed dead. Well, why? Well, God's why. I mean, that's the ultimate reason. God's the reason why. But why did God raise him specifically? The de death in the domain of Satan, that, that domain of Satan in, in eternal death, it couldn't hold him for three reasons. One, divine power prevented it. God raised him from the dead. And the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is also the same power that's in the Holy Spirit that lives in us. God raised Jesus by his hand because Jesus was totally innocent. He was not guilty. The second reason he was raised from the dead and death couldn't hold him was divine promise. Just like we read in Joel, there's promises in Old Testament Scripture that God would not allow it. He would not allow his Messiah to stay dead. It was in God's Word. It was written down. 
And then the third reason is divine purpose, that God designed humans to live with him eternally, but death was kind of holding that back. We couldn't live with God eternally because of sin and the curse of death. And Jesus broke that. Until Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, had risen and came through death and out the other side, we couldn't come out of death. We couldn't avoid hell. I mean, I think about how just would a God that crucifies an innocent person be if he left him dead? I mean, he was completely innocent. He was completely innocent. So, yes, God raised him. His life means that death can't master him anymore. His, and our faith gives us that same gift, that same gift of life under God's grace. You go read Romans 6. You'll see Paul talk about it extensively. Jesus. Peter preaches Jesus. You know, there's simple phrases that will remind you of advertisements like the real thing, Coke, you know, uh, just do it, Nike, finger licking good. Everybody knows what that is. I know it's close to lunchtime or be close to lunchtime. You might get hungry here. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Yeah, we remember those phrases because they've been, they were pounded into us over and over again, you know. But here's our phrase we need to remember. Here's what we need to be telling people. Jesus Christ, dead, buried, risen, and ascended to heaven. That's the gospel. That's how you get forgiveness. That is our catchphrase. Jesus Christ, dead, buried, or lived, died, and rose again. We need to remember that. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified. Nothing else. Nothing else needs to be added to that. Jesus Christ crucified. See how simple that is? It's not hard to tell people that. Preach it. Tell it. Speak it. Relay it. Convey it. Communicate it. Teach about Jesus Christ. He was crucified as foreordained by God to pay the ransom against our sins. That curse I was talking about a while ago. He was raised to life to defeat eternal death and offer heaven to all who believe. See, you don't have to make anybody believe it. Peter doesn't even know what's going to happen after this sermon. He's just preaching the truth. He's just preaching Jesus. You don't have to make anybody, you, well, for one, you can't make anybody believe it. As convincing as an argument as I can make, I've never made anybody believe in Jesus Christ. That's up to God and the Holy Spirit. You and I must simply do what Peter's do and tell people about Jesus. Tell the world, tell your neighbors, tell your family, tell your friends. Get the word out that Jesus grants forgiveness. Be bold and confident about it, but not arrogant and pugnacious about it. Tell it. Speak the name of Jesus with love and gentleness. So Peter preaches Jesus, but he never states that he's the Messiah. Clearly, he's going to do that next. In this next point, he biblically proves to them. Peter proclaims the Messiah, verses 25 through 31. Let me read these passages for you, these verses. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing that was what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah, 
He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. Peter goes to their most beloved king and prophet, David. I mean, they'll listen to David, even now. They'll listen to David. And his words should have convinced any doubters at this point. David writes a foretelling prophecy from the perspective of the Messiah. We know this because David did die and he did decompose. We know that when he says, when he's speaking in the first person in this passage, it's the Messiah talking, not David. David's just writing down. He's taking dictation because David did die. He did decompose. His tomb is occupied. It's right there, not far from where Peter's talking to this crowd. So this passage is the Messiah speaking, the Messiah talking to us and explaining the Holy One. That is the Messiah. He is the anointed one by God to save. That's what Messiah means. He, we know this too by the reaction that the Sanhedrin had when Jesus said this very thing. Whew, they got mad when he claimed to be the Messiah. Accused him of blasphemy, and that's eventually what made him guilty to them. We use the word Christ a lot of times because Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. So just a little tidbit there. There's your Greek and Hebrew lesson for the day. Jesus is that person. That's what we've got to remember. Jesus didn't go down to Hades. He didn't go to hell because he didn't do anything wrong. His body did not decay one bit. Did not decay one bit. His bones were not broken. David's body still entombed, like, I, like he says. And he did decay, and his bones are present. And this passage points to only one person, the Messiah. So Peter's making that connection between Jesus and the Messiah. The Messiah, Jesus, points out the paths of life. He became the way, the truth, and the life. He is the gate to eternal life. He is the narrow way to heaven. Jesus is the path of life into God's kingdom. And Jesus' resurrection became that path to eternal life that we need to all follow. All of us who have believed have chosen that path. And Peter now explains to them what is obvious to us because we have the Holy Spirit. Peter is taking the Bible and illuminates it to them. But we already know if we have the Holy Spirit, we've read this and we go, yeah, that Jesus was the Messiah. We got it. But Peter's having to make sure they understand that their Bible, which doesn't have the New Testament, their Bible spoke the same things. Peter connects the Davidic covenant of his descendant on the throne to the throne of God's kingdom. The Messiah has come. And this is earth, I mean, we don't get it. I mean, we really don't. But this is earth-shattering news to the Jews. Someone that they had been waiting for for centuries. Matter of fact, it actually was prophesied the first time in Genesis 3.15. So if they understood their Bible, truly they understood they'd been waiting a very, very long time. Peter takes their Bible and he illuminates it to their minds. So Peter connects this together. The Messiah has come, this Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Holy One. That's the final piece of the puzzle that they needed. Should have been anyway. But Peter's just using deductive reasoning here as he reads the Old Testament. Sherlock Holmes, Hercule Poirot, uh, Columbo, sort of. They all use deductive reasoning. All the detective novels and detective shows you read and watch, they're using some form of deductive reasoning. If this happened, this can't happen, those kind of things. Peter's using it to show that the Messiah had to be Jesus, the only person that's ever risen from the dead by himself. I mean, that's, 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 the, that's the conclusion. 
Jesus even had professed it in his trial. In Mark 14, 62, one of our former memory, memory verses, after Caius, Caiaphas, the high priest, asked him, are you the Messiah? He said, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus replies, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus didn't deny it. Peter points to, to the Old Testament to conclude that. This is exactly why I tell you all the time, use the whole Bible. The whole Bible, the whole counsel of God, from Genesis to Revelation, is about Jesus. That's all it's about. That's the point. The stories, everything is meant to get us looking for the Messiah. And when people downplay the role of the Old Testament in, in, in understanding their faith and, and understanding God, I tell them they're only getting half the story. There's a lot more in there. You know, God planned this before light was even created. The Old Testament speaks of him in many places with perfect clarity. But many people have seemed to try to ignore him, to disclaim Jesus in his resurrection, to discredit Jesus in his ministry, to deny that Jesus is the Son of God. That's happened. There was this whole Jesus study thing that went on. I can't remember the name of it, but anyway... But this proof is irrefutable. It is. It, it, there's, no, there's no way in the world Jesus couldn't have lived and died and was buried in rows. The, the, the proof is there. It's a fact. Now, the world chooses to blindly deny it, to not res research the facts, to not understand it. Their theories and their conjectures, they do not meet and, and match the logical and undeniable truth of ancient Scripture. See, that's the problem is we think because it's old, it's, it's no longer applicable. But that's just the opposite. Ancient scriptures and ancient works, especially written close to the event, which most of the Bible was, at least most of the New Testament was, are reliable. But you know what? Proof won't save a soul. I could sit up here to argue with you all day. We could have all kinds of debates. But proof will never save a soul. It may inform the mind, but... Only the Holy Spirit can save your soul. God sent Jesus, his son, to be the Savior, the Lamb, the blood price for the sins of humanity. You have to believe that. You have to trust that. And denying that fact really is foolish. I mean, it really is. Foolish and ignorant. As people say, don't confuse me with the facts. Well, the facts is it happened. But trusting him for forgiveness, that calls for faith, not knowledge. Knowledge is good, but it must lead to faith which is a gift from God. So Peter has explained the Holy Spirit, why it came. He's tied that event to Jesus and proven the Messiah has come. Now he concludes. Peter presses the truth. God raised Jesus from the dead. In verses 32 through 36, Peter says, God has raised this Jesus we are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into hev the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. God raised him. These people are testifying to it. They've seen him. Peter's pressing in this truth on them. They will also swear that God, Jesus sits down at the right hand of God, that they saw that. They testify to that. 
And God the Father gave God the Son the Holy Spirit. That was a present from God to Jesus. And he gave it to us. Jesus gives us this gift of the, of the Spirit. And that's why they're hearing the gospel in their languages. These events are proof. The Spirit of God has come from the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he gives them one more Old Testament proof here. This is Psalms 110.1. It, it basically talks about the fact that David's Lord, which isn't David, so David, it's not David who's ascended, but David's Lord, who is, by the way, Jesus Christ. God said to him, sit down at your, my right hand until your enemies, my enemies and your enemies are your footstool. And Jesus will sit there until God has reached the point where the enemies need subduing by God's decision. One day, the enemies of death, hell, and Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. Sin will be gone. The foes of God are all who deny and disobey his commands. That's harsh, but that's the truth. Anyone who does not believe in Jesus Christ for their forgiveness is an enemy of God. So Peter concludes this. Therefore, all this evidence that I have given you leaves no doubt that this Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified. He never, he never seems to let that go, does he? He's pointing his finger and poking at that. All the evidence leaves no doubt, room for doubt, speculation or denial. This Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Messiah. He is Lord no matter what. He may not be Lord of your life, but he's Lord, period. Sooner or later, you'll re realize that. But Peter presses them with this truth. You killed, the, your, you killed your Messiah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's tough for them to swallow. As a matter of fact, uh, I, he I heard a testimony this week of one pastor who had talked with a Jewish rabbi, and when he brought up the name Jesus, the Jewish rabbi slammed his fist on his desk and said, don't ever mention that name again in my presence. They hate the idea that we, we think and we believe that they crucified their Messiah. They just despise it. But God made him the eternal Passover lamb. Case closed. I mean, that's the, that's the end of it. Just like a prosecuting attorney brings the truth to them. Peter presses this truth to them. Hey, whether you like it or not, Jesus is the Messiah. Even if you did play a part in crucifying him. He presses this home. And, and he even does it in a letter he writes later in the, in the Bible in 1 Peter. He says, these things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. He's reminding them of what he's just done right here at Pentecost. Therefore, I always loved therefore because that means whatever has been said above it implies this next line, this next statement. So whatever, whenever you see a therefore, look above and see what the therefore is there for. Therefore, what are you doing with Jesus? What are you doing with Jesus? I mean, Peter's leaving that question kind of hanging out there in the air. What are you doing with Jesus? You have I have exposed the truth to you of Peter's sermon. And that pressing question still applies today. Peter begs and implies this question. Jesus is God's son. Jesus is the Messiah that God sent to provide forgiveness of sin for those who believe in him. You can't change that. You can't prove it wrong. It is what happened. Now, you can ignore it, which I don't advise, but really, you're only lying to your own soul when you do. Physical, physical death is still a reality. It is. It's still a reality. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, to face the judgment. It will come. No one escapes God's judgment, but you can escape eternal death. You can escape 
eternal death by trusting totally in the forgiving sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This truth still presses on all humanity today. Where will my eternal soul dwell after this life? Let's think about that question as we go into our time of prayer, pastoral prayer, just a time of silent prayer. Think about that question. Where will my eternal soul dwell after this life? We'll take a time of silent prayer, and then I'll close this after a minute or so. If you want to come to the altar and pray, please do. Um, But uh, we're going to pray quietly now. So let's pray.